Does your husband or partner influence the way that you eat? Maybe they're helpful. Maybe they convince you that putting down that block of chocolate after dinner is a great idea. Or maybe they're more of a silent self-sabotager and they undermine your efforts to stick to your healthy eating plans and to exercise more. On today's episode of The Nutrition Couch, we take a deeper dive into the effects that those closest to us have on our daily eating and exercise habits and how to manage them if they're not the most supportive member of your crew. Hi, I'm Leanne Ward. And I'm Susie Burrell. And every week we bring you The Nutrition Couch, the bi-weekly podcast that keeps you up to date on everything that you need to know in the world of nutrition. As well as managing our partners, we take a closer look at some brilliant new research on gut health and fat loss, and our listener question is all about your morning coffee. But to kick us off, Susie, we're going to have a very interesting discussion about managing our partners. And I said to you before we started, we could probably talk for about 45 minutes on this because we've both had clients in the last couple of weeks that their partners have been... I'm going to say less than supportive, but not in an overweight. Like, I don't think they're genuinely trying to be unsupportive. They're just, I think our clients aren't communicating properly and managing, you know, expectations even. So it's about that constant communication. If your partner's doing something that's self-sabotaging you, that isn't helping you, then I think it's about that communication to say, look, this is my goal. Exercising this weekend is really important. I'd love to go to lunch with your friends. Can we move it an hour so I can go to my gym class earlier? Or you know what? You know, I love that chocolate, but I'm choosing to have a lighter night tonight because we're going for a big fancy dinner tomorrow. Could you perhaps not eat it right next to me on the couch? Because it makes it really difficult for me not to share that with you. So it's really, I find around that communication and stepping up and saying, this is my goal. This is important to me. But we do know that a lot of us struggle with that, don't we? Particularly in relationships. It's complicated. That's what I'll say. And there's no black and white answer to it. But I think you and I have both got some really classic examples of of ways this has come up and encourages, I guess, listeners to really ask themselves some tough questions in this space. So in the specific example I was referring to, a client of mine had found herself at a restaurant eating something that was very non-conducive to her diet goals. And when I had asked her why she had ended up at that cuisine, she said it was her husband's choice. And I had sort of gone along the lines of, well, was there nothing healthy that you could order? And it was a fairly black and white, no, that was all there was. And I sort of just prepped, you know, pushed a little bit to say, is your husband aware that you are actively taking big steps and focus and energy and money committing to this program and that meal choice, which wasn't a special meal, Leanne, or it wasn't a celebration. It was just a random run-of-the-mill meal. You know, did have you had a conversation with your husband? And, and then that sort of rolled into issues in that space around, you know, I guess, interpersonal relationships and and whether when you are making food or exercise decisions that aren't in line with your diet goals, are you blaming the other person or have you actually not asked what you need? Because I see both all of the time, you know, classic examples of being a victim to it and blaming the other person are... My husband likes to have food like that in the house. My husband likes to have dessert after dinner. I have to cook that way because my husband doesn't like the food that I have. So that's a good example. The other is I can't get to the gym because my husband's never home or I have to stay home with the kids because my husband goes to the gym. So there are a few where I sort of would question, are you actually using them as an excuse not to do things? 
because in some cases, and I don't want to say all because it's complicated and relationships are certainly not my strong point, but, you know, I often wonder if women, if we actually ask for what we want because I know myself, I'm very guilty of blaming my husband for doing things, but when it comes down to it, I haven't asked him to do the stuff I'm expecting him to do and I'm not clear. I assume that he knows that. And I do wonder in this context is if you said to your partner, your husband, doesn't have to be your husband, but your partner, you know, I'm really trying to lose weight here or I need to exercise, I want to exercise. Is there any way you could come home earlier one day or... Would you mind if I ordered something else? You order what you like. I don't mind. But do you mind if I have something else? Or do you mind if we don't keep that in the pantry? Or do you mind if you don't eat that in front of me? And I wonder if sometimes it is a bit of communication. And, of course, with relationships, they can be decades old. So if you're in a pattern of not asking for what you want or um, being a bit of a victim to it or self-sacrifice in yourself for family. And I see this all the time, Leanne, and I think it's a whole nother podcast episode for mums listening. We're so quick to self-sacrifice our own needs for everyone else in the family and be a victim to it rather than say, actually, no, I will feel better if I go to that gym class or you do dinner and I leave. And so I'm going to do that. And and the question is, why are we so quick to self-sacrifice for everyone else in the house when no one cares? None of the children or the husband care if you're feeling like crap because you haven't been to the gym, but you're so quick to sacrifice your own needs. And again, we could talk for days on that. It's complicated. But I think these are questions to be asking you. Have you asked your partner for what you need? Or are you using them as an excuse, a secret excuse to actually not eat particularly well or eat junk food when you shouldn't be or drink too much? Because my husband opens a bottle of wine every night and I've seen it all, Leanne, in, in the 25 years I've been a dietitian. I could give you examples in every single one of those hundred percent. And I think it's, it's an eye opening topic. And I think for a lot of people, it's going to make them feel very, very uncomfortable because perhaps it's something that they've never thought about before. Perhaps it's happening to them right now and they don't even realize that they're doing it. And I have a client and she's made brilliant, brilliant progress. And on the initial call that we had before she signed up to my coaching, she basically said to me, I cook what my husband and my son wants. That that's just the way it rolls. Like they run the household. I cook it all, but I cook what they want. And it's never about me. And she's going through Perry. Like we have to do quite a few specific nutrition strategies. Her son's 18 and I don't even know how old hubby is, but you know, he's fit, he's active, he's a tradie, right? So they have a lot higher requirements than she does. So they can get away with all of these carby based meals and the big bowls of pasta and the, you know, the pizzas that they have and the takeaway all the time. And I said to her, look, we're going to write you recipes that are specific to your body and your goals. And this is what you're going to stick to. You cook. And if they don't want to borrow it, they're big boys and they can take care of themselves. And it was a struggle for the first week or two. There was a little bit of pushback, but she said, this is what I'm making. And half the time, they don't like it. They said, there's too many veggies in there. It's not, you know, it's not that it wasn't flavorsome. They're just like, I want more. I want some bacon. I want some sausages or whatever it might be. Just typical blokes, right? And she said, you know, this is the option. Like, this is what I've made. It's for dinner. If you don't like it, you can go and fend for yourself. And for the last eight weeks, they've been doing exactly that. And she's made tremendous progress. She's prioritized herself. She's happier. She's healthier. She's more confident. And the boys are big boys. They're taking care of themselves. They don't mind. It was initially a bit of a shift, but she went, you know what? This is my time. I'm signing up. This is my time to shine. I'm going to take care of myself and put myself first. And that's exactly what she's done completely unapologetically. Like it's been amazing. So I think sometimes we just have to say, you know what? This is my time. I'm going to do it for me. It's much more difficult when you've got little kids who can't fend for themselves. But if you've got teenagers, if you've got a partner who's 
two arms and two legs and can cook a meal themselves, then I really think that, you know, we don't have to always be the ones in the kitchen cooking for everybody. A lot of times they can fend for themselves. So if they don't like what's on the table, get them to make something themselves or they can order in or have something themselves. If they want to order something, but it doesn't serve you, you know, don't be afraid to order something different. You don't have to order the same thing. I've had cases where my clients are ordering pizza for the hubby and the kids and they've gone and they've got like a Vietnamese salad bowl. They've got a lovely stir fry from the local Thai place down the road. You don't just have to eat what the rest of the family eats if it's not serving you or it's not serving your goals. A lot of the time I do think it is a little bit of a, I guess, like a cop out um, that we just say, oh, it's just easier if we do that. But let's be honest, you're not making it anyway. You're just jumping on Uber Eats to order it. It takes an extra five minutes to go and choose something healthier from somewhere else and it's going to arrive roughly at the same time anyway. So I really think like be honest with your goals, prioritize yourself because you can't pour from an empty cup. And I think a lot of the times as as women and as mums, we burn ourselves out. We put everybody else before us and our health takes the lowest priority. And it's not until we get diabetes or we we end up in hospital completely burnt out or something like that, that we tend to take it seriously. And by then it's often too late, isn't it? True. I think that the other context that have come up in when you're summarising is buying junk food for the kids and then eating it. So you'll buy the chips or the snack food, whatever it is, and say, oh, it's for the kids, for the lunch boxes, which is absolutely fine if you're not going to eat it. So for example, at my home, I do have, you know, chips and things for the kids' lunch boxes. I'm no purist. I like them to have a range of different foods. But I know I don't I don't eat them. My husband eats them, absolutely, but I don't. I have no issue with that. But if you're someone who ultimately knows you will eat them, stop buying them. Buy a flavor you don't like or just say, sorry, kids, you can't have that or give them money to get it at the canteen. But you're basically setting yourself up to fail and, again, self-sacrificing for someone else's needs over your own. So that's one example. The second is the carbs, the heavy carb meals at night. I have a lot of my ladies who'll be cooking big rice and pasta dishes because they may have teenage boys or kids who prefer the white carbohydrates, you know, the nuggets and the chips and and that kind of food, but then they eat it. So again, I'll say, but it's not setting the kids up for good habits to be constantly allowing them to have that food that's not balanced without their veggies and salad as well. So you're allowing them to dictate the food environment at home, which is ultimately sacrificing their own nutritional intake as well as your health. So, you know, I think that in many cases we do use it as a bit of an excuse because we've set up environments that are child-led or husband-led, but they're actually not healthy for anybody. And really the kids would do better with some healthier meals that had a salad veggie base and less of that processed carbohydrate as well. And it's not hard to work through. You know, if you've got an air fryer, do some veggie chips as well in the air fryer and mix it up and say, that is it. But, you know, it, don't get me wrong. Sometimes it's you need time and attention to make these changes. But the first step is observation. So just observe some of these things going on at home. And are you using them as excuses? And are you actually also, as we've said, asking for what you need as opposed to playing a bit of a victim and, and using it as an excuse to take you to the next level? Absolutely. That conversation with our loved ones is really key to just say, look, this is what I need. I need an hour on the weekend. I need you to take the kids. I need to have an hour to myself to prioritize myself, to do some meal planning, to do some meal prep, to go to the grocery store, to go to the gym, whatever it might be. But I need that for myself. Can you help me out with that? And often, like you said, we just, we don't ask for what we want. So it's a really, really just nice thing to have a think about this weekend, I think, ladies and gentlemen listening as well. (laughs) All right. Well, that leads us to our next topic, Susie, which is very interesting and very close to my heart being a gut health dietitian as well. Now, we've known for some time that our gut health has direct implications for fat loss, but I think that this is a really, really cool study. 
It was written up in The Guardian um, only a week or so ago, so it's brand new research about toxins from our gut that can damage fat cells and drive weight gain. So it's really showing how endotoxins from our gut can increase our risk of obesity and type 2 diabetes. Really fascinating stuff, Susie. So we've known it for quite some time, but it was just really nice to reconfirm that the research is still there to support how important our gut health is. And I think for a lot of people, they think, you know what, I'm not symptomatic. I go to the bathroom once a day. Like I'm fine. My gut health is fine. And the time and time and time again, I hear that from my clients. Like I don't have IBS. Like I don't have celiac disease. My gut's fine. Just because you're not symptomatic doesn't mean that your gut health is actually optimized. And if you're struggling with fat loss, if you're living in a body that's 10 plus kilos overweight, I can guarantee you that your gut health is not optimized. So essentially what this research showed us, so it was scientists at Nottingham Trent University. And what they looked at were microbial fragments known as endotoxins and how they were able to actually enter the bloodstream and how they then directly affected our fat cell functions. So for the research, basically they took a group of obese people um, and they looked at their gut barrier. So researchers assessed 156 people. So it wasn't a huge, huge study, but it was still a good amount of participants, right? And of those 156 people, 63 of them were classed as obese. And what the goal was, was to understand how these endotoxins from their gut actually played a role, if they did, in increasing these people's risk of things like obesity and type 2 diabetes. So what the team did was they collected a couple of different samples. They collected some blood samples and some fat cells as well. And of these people, some of them had actually undergone bariatric surgery as well. So it gave them sort of like a second subclass of people to actually, you know, further study more. So when they were collecting these fat cells, we've got two types of fat cells. We've got white fat cells, which store energy, and we've got brown fat cells, which utilize energy. And those brown fat cells are associated with things like metabolic activity. So what they found is that these white fat cells, those were the ones where obesity was less likely to transform into the brown-like fat cells compared to the fat cells when they're looking at lean individuals. So researchers said that it was basically due to high levels of endotoxins found in the blood and the gut of these people with obesity. So basically, and I'll quote directly from the lead researcher at the Nottingham University, essentially was saying that the gut microbial fragments that entered the bloodstream reduced the normal fat cell function and their metabolic activity, which then exacerbated weight gain and likely contributed to an increased risk of diabetes. So it appears that as we gain weight, our fat stores and our fat cells are less able to limit the damage that the gut microbial fragments cause to those fat cells. So the endotoxins from the gut reduce the fat cell metabolic activity and its ability to become those brown-like fat cells, which can actually be helpful for losing weight and metabolic function. So the study essentially just highlighted the importance of our gut health overall and the importance of those fat cells and how they actually work from a metabolic perspective. And the bigger we get and the worse our gut and those endotoxins get, the harder it is from a metabolic perspective to lose weight. So it's not, as I said, new research, Susie. It's basically you know, we've known for some time that our gut microbes play a really active role in our body weight and in fat loss. But the answer isn't as simple as just going and grabbing some probiotics from the chemist. It's not as simple as doing like a gut cleanse or cutting out gluten or anything like that. Creating a good, healthy gut microbiome takes time. Yes, you can do it in just a couple of weeks, but it's the consistency that matters over time. 
I think you see that a little bit from health in general. It's like good skin. It's built over time. You just can't take a skin supplement or buy an expensive cream and your skin's fixed. It's that foundation. And I do anecdotally observe with clients, they tend to get sick much more frequently. And I wonder if it comes down to that immune function coming out of the gut, because certainly we know that it's consuming 30 different varieties of plant foods is each week is one of the most powerful things you can do to promote the health of the gut microbiome. It's that diversity that really is helpful as well as feeding with the right fibres and the right gut bugs itself, so that varied diet. And I think that maybe one in 20 of my clients would consume 30 different plant foods each week because they just don't have that volume of salad or veg on a day-to-day basis. We struggle to get up to the the recommended serves, let alone the, the 7 to 10 for, for good health. So just a good reminder that it's our day-to-day food choices that are really important. It's the Monday to Friday that's important as opposed to the weekends, which is where we focus. hundred percent. And like you said, it's it's really important not only just to focus on the plants and the fibres, but also focusing on things like stabilising your blood sugars, reducing alcohol, reducing stress in your day-to-day life. Like when was the last time you went and did a meditation or a yoga class versus getting up at 4am and flogging yourself at an F45 session at the gym? Sometimes actually taking the long, slow route can be really beneficial for your stress and in turn your gut health as well. So making sure we're doing all the right things from a holistic health perspective is going to do far more for our gut health long-term than just having a crappy diet, drinking too much on the weekend and taking your probiotic every day. Unfortunately, it's not enough and it just doesn't cut it. So if you're struggling with fat loss, take a step back and learn to nourish your gut health before you even consider fat loss, because otherwise things are just going to work 10 times harder against you if you haven't actually optimized what's actually going on in your gut health at a cellular level. Alrighty, and then for our final segment of the show, a listener question that one of our lovely listeners wanted to know was, does having coffee first thing in the morning break the fast? So I'm going to assume this is a milk-based coffee, right? Am I right to assume that? Yeah, it's definitely asking whether if you have a, a latte or even just a black coffee with milk, does that break the fast? And I think it's a really good question. Yeah, 100%. So from my understanding, yes, it does. If you're looking at intermittent fasting, particularly from the fasting protocol perspective, anything that's not water essentially breaks the fast. Black coffee and herbal tea is going to be far better than if you're having a milky coffee, but absolutely a milky coffee breaks the fast. Now, how I sort of utilize fasting for my clients, Susie, is really just from a calorie reduction perspective. I don't utilize it for a lot of clients, but if they've got a really big social weekend or if they're traveling a lot or there's a lot of meals out, we might do a little bit of intermittent fasting, particularly if they're not someone who exercises in the morning or wakes up very hungry. So I sort of use it just from a calorie reduction perspective. So I'm not too concerned if my client has a coffee with or without milk, kind of wants to skip breakfast and pick up some extra calories for lunch or dinner if they're having a bigger day or a bigger social kind of occasion. But if someone is doing the proper intermittent fasting protocol from a gut health perspective or from a cognitive function perspective, then absolutely it should be pure fasting water only until you have your first meal of the day. That's sort of my understanding of where the research lies. What about you? We don't have research papers to show this, but for me, if you consume milk, you break the fast. I don't care whether it's a drop or whether it's a latte. So you have to have black tea or coffee or green tea if you're trying to extend that overnight fast and take it. Because we've said before when we're talking about this in context of appetite, what happens is my clients, I've had one before, they have the coffee, whether it's a cappuccino, latte, or even just an espresso pod with milk, then they're not hungry for a couple of hours and they delay breakfast. So it actually plays havoc with uh, appetite control as soon as you've consumed something that has some calories in it. So for me, absolutely, it's got to be black or green until you actually break the fast. Otherwise, you've broken the fast and you're not going to get the metabolic benefits. 
So simple answer here on the Nutrition Couch. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another episode. We'd love if you jumped onto our website, nutritioncouch.com and checked out some of our wonderful offerings. We've got our product guide. We've got our wonderful Australian-based takeaway guide and also our brand new Perry plan as well. And very soon to market, we hope our lovely snack guide, which we're doing adult snacks, snacks for active people, going gluten-free snacks. We've got some plant-based options, high-protein ones, snacks for weight loss and snacks for kids. We've got the whole range in there, Susie. It's wonderful. We're still working on it. We're really padding it out. We're giving you guys time tons and tons of value. So keep a watch on our website for that. And yeah, we hope to catch you guys in the very next podcast. Have a great week.